The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for April 17th, 2022. A lot has been going on in cyberspace recently. This week, the Justice Department, alongside other international law enforcement agencies, seized control of a website domain used by hackers to advertise data stolen from U.S. consumers and corporations. Additionally, Ukraine announced that it thwarted Russian efforts to hack the country's power grid, and the United States announced that it had secretly removed malware from computer networks around the world that could have been used by Russia to orchestrate cyber attacks on American critical infrastructure, such as financial firms, pipelines, and the electric grid. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from March 2019. In the episode, Susan Hennessy sat down with FBI Director Christopher Wray about what the director thought about the cyberspace in 2019, what his concerns were about the threats posed by Russia and China, what the FBI was doing to protect the 2020 elections, and more. I'm Susan Hennessy, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 6, 2019. On Tuesday, I interviewed FBI Director Christopher Wray at the 2019 RSA conference. We discussed how the director views the cyber threat landscape 18 months into his term, his concerns about the threats posed by Russia and China, what the FBI is doing to protect the 2020 elections, and more. It's the Lawfare Podcast, FBI Director Wray on Combating Cyber Threats. FBI occupies a really interesting space, in part because it plays roles across both national security and criminal law enforcement areas. You've been in the director's seat at the Bureau for a year and a half now. So I want to start by getting a sense of your perspective on the landscape. 18 months in, how do you view the cyber threat? I would say that the, well, I knew cyber was going to be probably our top priority in many ways. I think the, the, the scope, the breadth, the depth, the sophistication, the diversity of the threat that we face now uh, is unlike anything we've had in our lifetimes, whether you look at the, you know, the range of actors from multinational cyber syndicates to uh, foreign intelligence services to insider threats, hacktivists, you could go on and on, or whether you look at the, the range of victims from you know, global uh, publicly traded companies all the way to startups, mom and pops, uh, both businesses, public sector, nonprofits, 
or if you look at the range of attack methods, uh, you know whether you're talking about spear phishing all the way to ransomware, botnets, DDoS attacks. I mean, you could go on and on and on. So uh, I think in particular we're seeing a greater uptick uh, in the threat from various foreign adversaries, China, China uh, Russia, Iran, North Korea, uh, and an increasing trend towards what we call the blended threat, which is really when a, a foreign intelligence service enlists the help of criminal hackers, essentially mercenaries, uh, and we're seeing that more and more. Um, so I look at some of the things that we've had just over the last few months, um, and I think it gives you a flavor of the the point that I was making. I mean, we've had, just in the last few months, we had, you know, the case against the uh, Chinese um, Ministry of State Security hackers uh, for an extensive IP theft campaign against, uh, I think, 45 different companies all around the world. Uh, we had the Iranian nationals who were responsible for the SamSam ransomware, which crippled, you know, hospitals and local governments and various other public institutions. We had uh, a big sweep uh, on the other end of the spectrum of uh, an international business email compromise sweep where just in a single sweep covering three different continents, uh, we had probably something like 75 different arrests uh, all over the U.S., different continents around the world. Uh, we had the uh, North Korean government hacker uh, who was charged for his role in everything from the Sony Pictures attack to the... Bank of Bangladesh heist to the WannaCry uh, ransomware. Um, we had the, the Russian GRU officers uh, who were charged uh, for their participation in an extensive campaign, hacking campaign that was designed to destabilize uh, you know, the international anti-doping agencies. So you could go on and on, but that's just a, a small sample of what we're facing. Um, and certainly we're trying very, very hard to stay laser-focused uh, ahead of the threat. So against this backdrop, we've seen sort of recent reporting about U.S. Cyber Command's role in offensive operations. We hear a lot about what the Department of Homeland Security's role might be with regards to federal civilian infrastructure. I'm curious to hear sort of what part of the mission you would claim as unique to the FBI, right? There's a, there's a lot of cooks in the <coughs> kitchen right now, and sort of what does the FBI bring that these many other elements don't or can't? Well, first off, I think uh, as my my previous comment might have illustrated, my view is that uh, today's cyber threat is bigger than any one government agency, frankly bigger than government itself. Uh, but I think no agency brings the same combination of scope and scale, uh, experience, tools, relationships uh, that the FBI has. I mean, starting with the fact that, uh, as my earlier comments probably illustrated, you know, this, the cyber threat is really a multidisciplinary threat with a very wide range of bad guys, with a very wide range of motives, plans, and intentions. So it requires a multidisciplinary response. Uh, the FBI has been the lead domestic law enforcement and counterintelligence agency for 110 years. Uh, and then you look at things like we have, you know, technically trained personnel covering. 350 some odd offices around the U.S. between our field offices and our smaller offices. We have an elite rapid deployment force, our cyber action team, which can respond to a cyber incident pretty much anywhere in the world. We have cyber task forces, a lot like the JTTFs in the terrorism context all over the country, 
that even though they're FBI-led, we couldn't do without um, the participation of members of something like 200 different federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies that work with us on it. We have a 24-hour uh, you know, watch floor, cyber watch floor in D.C. that is responsible for coordinating U.S. law enforcement's response and tracking victim notification. And then we have uh, what a lot of people don't realize, we even have a lot of personnel overseas. Uh, we have uh, LEGAT offices you know, in something like 65 plus countries. Uh, and in a whole bunch of those have dedicated cyber, what we call ALATs, assistant legal attaches embedded in those offices. Um, and then we have things like our Office of Technology Division, which for anybody who's watched the James Bond movies is sort of like RQ, you know, who has the, the unbelievably cool cutting edge tools uh, that we use uh, for all of those missions. So you put all that together uh, and we do our part. So most of this audience approaches these challenges from a private sector perspective. Um, so I'm curious sort of what your view is of the role of the private sector in countering the kinds of cyber threats that you care about and sort of you know, help us understand what does is, what is that relationship look like? What are the challenges there? Well, I, so I used the analogy of the terrorism context before and talking about some of the things that we have. I would argue that in the cyber arena, the need for private sector partnership is higher than really anywhere else of any program we have. I mean, start with the fact that I think something like 90% of the United States' critical infrastructure is in the hands of the private sector, which is not true in lots of countries around the world. And that's just critical infrastructure. Uh, so the reality is we couldn't do what we do without the private sector and vice versa. Uh, the key is having the private sector start to form those kinds of relationships with their local field office beforehand because the name of the game, as this audience would know better than almost anybody, is, is not just prevention, but in many cases it's going to be mitigation. Uh, and that's a place where speed really matters and speed is much more likely to occur when there's an existing relationship. The other problem is that, of course, if you only look at one company's uh, cyber incident in isolation, uh, quite often it's going to turn out to actually be something that has ramifications in a bunch of other sectors as well. And there's no way for one side or the other to know that unless we broaden our collective knowledge. So we're trying to do a lot more forward-leaning things than we have historically. Uh, you know, we had a tendency to be very close hold uh, with information, and we still have obligations to do that. But we're trying to do a lot more routinely things like defensive classified briefings for companies where we alert them to certain threats, try to give them, in effect, a form of guidance to help them get ahead of, of the game a little bit. And we've had some pretty good success with that. But we're also doing things, uh, we have a lot of programs with everything from CISOs to general counsels. Some of them are local, some of them are more nat national. Um, and so I think at the end of the day, we need each other uh, in a way that I think is becoming more and more apparent every day. Um, I could give an example. I mean, it might be a little counterintuitive. We had one case just a few years ago where um, there was a guy who, through hacking, obtained the names of like 1,200 different uh, U.S. military members and U.S. government personnel and provided it as a kill list to ISIS. We would not have gotten that information if not for important information sharing from the private sector. So, again, that symbiotic 
relationship. So that answer sort of touches on how incredibly important the private sector is here. Um, the last time there was a big uh, sort of public focus on FBI private sector engagement was sort of around the rather contentious showdown with Apple related to the use of end-to-end -end encryption. So how do you reconcile those two things? Well, look, I, I have, um, unlike some FBI directors, actually spent a certain amount of time in the private sector uh, representing companies uh, before this latest stint in government. Uh, what I would say is that just as technology has become a force multiplier for the good guys, uh, it has become a force multiplier for the bad guys, for terrorists, hackers, spies, criminals. Um, and what I know is that not a week goes by where I don't encounter across basically all of our programs some significant, sometimes insurmountable impediment from some of those same uh, criminals, hackers, spies, et cetera, hiding uh, with encrypted devices or encrypted messaging platforms. Um, and so it's a, it's a public safety issue that we're concerned about. Now, I'm well aware of uh, that this is a provocative uh, subject. Uh, my first uh, approach to these things is not to try to go to war with anybody over it. Uh, I get a little frustrated when people suggest that we're trying to weaken encryption. Uh, to be clear, those are not our words. We're not trying to weaken encryption. We're not seeking a back doors any more than I think the folks, the well-intentioned critics on the other side, are trying to weaken public safety. But I, but I do know that this is an issue that's getting worse and worse all the time, and every state and local law enforcement leader I deal with every member of the intelligence community I deal with, every foreign partner I deal with, uh, is raising this issue with growing urgency. And so while we are a very strong believer in strong encryption, after all, cybersecurity is part of the FBI's mission too, uh, we're also duty-bound to protect the American people. Um, and we have to figure out a way to deal with this problem. It can't be a sustainable end state for there to be an entirely un, uh, unfettered space that's utterly beyond fully lawful access for criminals, terrorists, and spies to hide their communications. Um, and so what I would like to see, since I believe that the U.S. has the finest law enforcement and national security community in the world and the most innovative private sector in the world, uh, I would love to see people try to come together to work towards solutions. And increasingly, during my first 18 months, in private conversations from experts, you know, cryptographers, cryptologists, et cetera, I'm hearing increasingly that there are solutions to be had if people are willing to put their heads together. And so that's what I hope we can accomplish. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code 
Lawfare 20. So switching to a less controversial topic, Russia. Uh, we've heard a lot of mixed <laughs> messages on this subject, um, and so I, I want to get your view on this. Uh, do the Russians still pose a threat to U.S. elections, and do they pose a threat of more broadly covert influence on our society? Yes. No. Uh, 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 absolutely. I mean, the Russians uh, have we have not seen in the most recent midterm election a material impact on election infrastructure from a foreign adversary like Russia, but what we have seen, what has continued virtually unabated and just intensifies during the election cycles, uh, is this malign foreign influence campaign, especially using social media, but lots of other techniques as well, to sow divisiveness and discord, to pit Americans against each other, to undermine our faith in democracy. Um, and that continues. Uh, and we're gearing up for it to continue and grow again for 2020. So what are you doing to prepare for 2020? Well, a number of things. Uh, across different agencies, uh, we're all taking different efforts to try to beef up our own uh, role. At the FBI, for example, we created a foreign influence task force, which brings together both cyber, counterintelligence, criminal, even counterterrorism, uh, all trying to have sort of a multidisciplinary hub that then has the spokes going out to our field offices. We worked very closely with NSA. Uh, and DHS and ODNI in particular, the, those three last in the midterms. And I think the real good news story is there's a lot more engagement with other partners, uh, a lot more engagement with the social media companies this time around in a way where we provide them with information. They're able to take action using their own tools, policing their own platforms, uh, and then in turn, there may be situations where they provide useful lead information for us. So there's a little bit more of that virtuous cycle going. Uh, and there were some quite a number of really encouraging success stories. Um, and frankly, I think it's a great example of how government and the private sector can work together in a common defense. So the past few years have sort of been uh, dominated by this discussion of Russia. What we've seen sort of out of Capitol Hill and in the media is there's, there's always sort of a cyber threat actor of the moment. So Russia or Iran or North Korea, for a while it was the cyber caliphate. Um, I think it's fair to say sort of attention has now refocused on China. Um, is that emphasis sort of well-founded or are we overly focusing on specific threats at, at the expense of a broader strategic conversation? I don't think we're overly focused. I would argue that for too long, this country has actually been under-focused on the counterintelligence threat, which has a heavy cyber dimension, but it's not exclusively a cyber issue that China poses. Uh, there is nothing like it. Um, and I'm not somebody who uh, is prone to hyperbole, but of all the things that surprised me when I came back into this world, uh, the thing that most shocked me was the, the breadth and the depth, um, uh, the scale of the Chinese counterintelligence threat. Um, we have economic espionage investigations in basically all 56 field offices, almost all of which lead back to China. It covers every sector of the economy. It covers academia. Um, in the last, just this fall, we had, I think, maybe four different times where we charged, and those are just the ones we charged, uh, either hackers working for the Chinese government or others associated with the MSS or other parts of the Chinese government 
trying to steal American intellectual property or attack American businesses. Um, so it's a real issue. So I want to ask a little bit of a pointed question, um, and that's that the Department of Justice has made a number of high-profile arrests and indictments against Chinese citizens and Chinese companies. Um, to what extent is that being driven by our ongoing trade discussions with the Chinese government? Uh, so not at all. Okay. Uh, this is not about trade. Um, it's not about politics. It's not even about diplomacy. It's about the rule of law. Uh, and we're going to, in everything we do, as long as I have anything to say about it, we're going to follow the facts independently wherever they may lead, to whomever they may lead, no matter who likes it. Uh, and that means when we find somebody who's committing federal crimes against Americans or American businesses, we're going to go after them. Uh, and I don't really care what some foreign government has to say about it. So, sort of stepping back on the same theme, but more broadly speaking, you know, do you think that the justice system is an effective deterrent for cyber-enabled IP theft or election interference, right? So does naming and shaming actually work? Well, first off, indictments, uh, I think, are just one part of a, a much more of a whole of government strategy in terms of enforcement. Um, I will say that one of the things that hackers of all shapes and sizes prize the most in this world is anonymity and stealth uh, and deniability. And by indicting them publicly, uh, among other things, we strip them of that. And we've seen lots of instances where particular hackers have now become essentially persona non grata and unable to get work. I know it breaks your heart. Uh, because they've been called out. Second, uh, the indictment allows uh, often other parts of the government to take to impose additional costs, so there are additional sanctions that can flow from that. Third, I think it's a little bit of a myth that these people would never see the inside of a U.S. courtroom. Just during my year and a half on this job, we've had a number of instances where hackers um, have been unable to resist the temptation to travel from whatever garden spot they live in um, and then got picked up. Um, and the FBI is patient, but also dogged. Uh, and when they decide to travel, we'll be waiting. And just like China's playing the long game, so are we. So to what extent are you concerned about foreign governments retaliating with similar measures against individuals who conduct operations on behalf of the United States? Well, of course, we're always concerned about any tactic that some foreign government would, would use. Um, but I, I want to be clear that uh, the FBI is, there's no entity or individual that the FBI is afraid to go after if the rule of law supports it. Director Wright, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you haven't yet, give the podcast a rating and review wherever you listen to it, and share the Lawfare podcast on Twitter and Facebook. As always, thanks for listening.